Welcome to Creative Engineering. Today, we're going to be talking about widget builders, Flutter editors, IDEs, analyzer plugins, storyboarding, and much more. With me, I have my co-host, Norbert. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Um, it's been a week where I finally um, got back into publishing something. Um, actually, two <laughs> things, which we'll talk about in a minute. How have you been doing? Doing pretty good, yeah. Uh, just been pretty crazy. Uh, have been releasing a lot of uh, plugins too. Um, speaking of some announcements that's come out, uh, GitHub announced Code Spaces. Pretty crazy. Have you heard of it? Yes, I've seen it. Of course, they they own VS Code, and now they all they also own GitHub, and now they combine those two pretty cool things into one. And like, I'm just thinking about the possibilities of not having to clone a repository, go in there, do some changes to a PR, just just being able to open mm -hmm. it online, changing something and just having it all in one place looks like a big thing. Yeah, what's cool about it too is they're offering, you know, a Docker-based um, environment. So you can have Flutter installed. They have their examples. They have Node.js, Rust and TypeScript and just the, the ability to open up something that doesn't require UI. Like there's many times I may fix like a bug that's just in Dart and it's just a logic bug and you basically want to be able to just write something and then run your test. And this is something that you can do right from GitHub now, which I think is super, super cool. I mean, think about how many times we want to just like release a plugin update mm -hmm. and, you know, we have to either do it from our local machine just to submit it to pub or, you know, just these other crazy hacks we come up with. But what's cool now is like you could actually log in to pub from the terminal from that shell here and then actually publish your plugin uh, without actually needing to download it, which I don't know. I don't know about you, but like for me, I have started to run out of space because of all the repositories on my machine. I recently had to like go and clean up a bunch because I mean, it starts to add up. Like once you start forking a bunch and doing all that. Yes. Yeah, so I literally sat down, uh, I think it was yesterday when uh, my disk space was running very low, like low as yeah. zero bytes on C, uh, which isn't that cool. And I went into my workspace folder and there were so many projects, which with each mm -hmm. being over one gigabyte. And in the end, it turned out yep. I had all the old desktop windows embedders in there, which were all taking up like 600 megs each. So I was just yeah. able to delete the old ones because you'd have to recreate them if you run this with the new version. So that saved me like 10 yeah. gigabytes, uh, which was pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, I actually ran into the same thing. It was all the runner builds for Mac OS that mm. were taking up so much space. And I guess it counts a new build every time. Yeah, because it would be a, a new archive build. But yeah, that was really annoying because I think I cleared up like 75 gigs of all the, the code 75. that I had taken off. Yeah, it was like, a bunch. Because like... You know, each repo maybe be over a couple of gigs because of the changes and the content inside of them. Because I'm like storing images too, and yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> now, I feel my 10 gigs is nothing compared to your 75. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also have this like weird bug. I hope other people aren't having this too. But basically, the Dart analyzer will start taking up like 100 plus gigs of memory, and then yeah, it's weird. Like I can restart. I, I don't know. I've had this happen on a couple different computers of mine, but like mac os will like the system will start taking up like 300 gigs 200 gigs and then i'll restart my computer and then it goes away and it's like super annoying <laughs> i don't have that much memory but so i've been so my normal day-to-day -day storage space like 10 gigs or 5 gigs on c which uh 
my laptop's <laughs> a bit old, uh, but yeah, I've noticed the same thing. Like, I'm not sure where it's because of the door analyzer, but over the day, it fills up. At some point, Windows yeah. just notifies me, okay, you have no more space left. And yep. at this point, I restore my computer and it's all back. Like, do you think it's because of door analyzer? Yeah, I think maybe it could be like it's not garbage collecting correctly, or maybe it's uh, it's something to do with like the pub cache because I can rebuild the pub cache and it like fixes most of the issues. Like I have a couple projects right now that just won't analyze. Like it'll it'll get stuck on you know processing, and then I'll have to restart, and then usually that'll fix it. Even yeah, it's there's just some weird issues. I mean, every now and then. I feel like I've had these analyzer issues and then there'll be a fix and then it'll break again in a couple of weeks. So I don't know. I don't know if, hopefully it's just my machine and not actually something everybody else is facing too. Nice. Weird indeed. Yep. So uh, today, like we said, we're going to be talking about, you know, UI builders and editors and um, just trying to have a discussion about, you know, like what the current state is. So um, based on my knowledge, I feel like there's, you know, a couple players out there there's adobe xd which has some community plugins that export to flutter um i know that they're officially releasing their plugin that's going to go to flutter projects but that's not out yet there's been supernova which is really cool at flutter interact they announced some really cool updates with it um that one actually allows you to open up adobe xd and sketch and export flutter projects which is super cool um and just as a side note that one of my favorite editors that I had found, which never actually got to use, which was the Dart editor. Um, but I thought that was really cool because that was a whole editor that um, the Dart team released around the same time as Dartium, allowing you to edit Dart code uh, without actually having to have Dart installed. And of course, we have Dartpad um, and CodePen for that matter of online editors that you can build individual screens with code in a declarative way. Um, am I missing any? We both don't know what the status is, but on Flutter Interact, Google itself uh, mm. um, mentioned a UI editor builder, uh, which they were working on. They have been very secretive about it. Like I have, <laughs> I've looked online and there is no trace of this ever being, like there is the video of it being uh, announced and yep. spoken about, but nothing else. It's like ghosts. <laughs> Like, yeah, you can search it on Google and you won't find it. <laughs> they, they even provided more information about Fusion than this. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the same concept. You know, I was like, I was searching everywhere. I was like, maybe I just missed it. Maybe I'm typing the wrong name. And it's like, <laughs> nope, it's just like not there. So either one, they backed out on it or two, they're just not ready. Uh, we'll see. But um, yeah, I mean, and then also too, I just wanted to talk about, you know, because you, you've had your widget maker for a while and um, just... Uh, wanted to talk about some of the things that you faced when building it and um, the fact it's open source now, which uh, we'll definitely link in the description. But uh, so what um, what made you want to build the widget maker? So um, I think the story started, I was just bored and I thought, okay, how <laughs> cool would it be if you could open the Flutter project in itself? Like imagine just running an mm -hmm. app on your phone and just opening the source code of that app inside that app and reload itself. So I start with this uh, weird and crazy experiment of <laughs> building this little so-called phone IDE project, which had the most terrible UI you probably have ever seen. Uh, but it was a pretty neat <laughs> proof concept. Uh, basically what was happening uh, on the phone, it uh, got the files via an HTTP server on the computer, which it was connected to. 
And when it wanted to hot reload itself, it basically sent a request to the computer and it was connected to the computer via ADB wireless. Uh, and mm. so the computer was able to just hot reload it over the, the Wi-Fi and just have this magic effect of having your complete app on the phone, modifying the app itself on the phone, which was so interesting that I just uh, kept exploring the idea of trying to to make widgets and make the building of UI um, more approachable and more efficient. And like the current version, which is online, is actually, I think, the third iteration. Like I've rewritten mm. the code at least one or two times because the ideas I had and all the stuff that was floating around in my head constantly kept changing and I tried to uh, figure out what I actually wanted to build. Yeah, so like um, what approaches did you take when first building the the UI part of it? Because I feel like when you're working with Flutter widgets, you know, there's so many different types of widgets that Flutter mm -hmm. provides. Like could be pretty hard to like, you know, have that um, strongly typed because there's no like receive a list of all the widgets and all the properties. Uh, you have to yes. do that kind of manually. Um, like I tried um, a couple of things. Like as you said, there's no way to get all the widgets easily. Um, you, what you can actually do is just using Dart Analyzer, uh, analyze all of Flutter itself and just see which object extends, for example, a stateless state for widget or something like this. But uh, I actively decided against using this because <laughs> when you scan all those widgets, it doesn't make sense to handle a scaffold the same way you would handle a list view. You need special UI to to allow the user who's building the app to interact with the list view differently than the scaffold. Like you as a developer yeah. who's building uh, using this UI builder, don't want one generic widget which doesn't work very very well mm -hmm. for all the widgets. You you want those widgets to work well with the individual components. So what I ended up doing is mostly handmade, like wrap each widget. At some point, a lot of widgets were pretty basic, like a center and a line. It's just a widget which has a child and takes it through properties. Um, I actually built a code generator uh, where I was able to just specify a few properties and generate all of this code, which I think struck a pretty good balance between uh, generating stuff, but on the other hand, also having the control to then actually go in there and say, okay, for the align, I maybe want to allow the user to actually drag the widget inside the editor. Like instead of uh, typing a line uh, bottom left, you just drag the widget right. which is in the line to the bottom left corner and it changes that. Like with, with this approach, you can have these special UI features in there without having to deeply modify the code which you've been doing. Did you face any issues when, you know, having it all, you know, combined together? Because I feel like. Um, when I first um, started building this, like you don't think about, you know, well, how do I show a column that has no children or a row that has no children? Like you have to like, you know, mm -hmm. make guesses about what the user is trying to do. And yes. then, like you said, in a list view, for example, like if you just add a list view, like by default, it's going to throw an error. So you have to like basically add a default kind of state and then allow it to be edited. Yes. Like, as I said, there's a lot of components which need this, uh, the special attention for list views uh, for, or for columns and rows uh, in particular. Um, so what I'm doing right now, but which isn't perfect, like you have to think about what, what you want to do is, for example, if it's empty, 
it tries to be as big as possible and hint to a user that this container mm. can put something in. If it has some kind of gel, it tries to be as small as possible and just show the spaces cool. like before the first widget or after that one where you can drop in the next widget. Um, but hmm. like, as you said, you, you have to make guesses and try to think about what, what would I want or what would I expect. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. like that's definitely a thing you have to, you have to talk to people, you have to try out, you have to, um, see what works and what doesn't. Um, but yeah, like there's a lot of different, uh, widgets, which need special care. And that's also one of the reasons I, uh, finally decided to open source it. Like those widgets <laughs> could be, uh, like people could make one separate widget and make a good UX and UI for that, uh, without having to touch most of the, the other parts of the code. And with that, the ability to collaborate in this is uh, pretty big because you say, okay, I mm -hmm. made this very nice component, for example, for the Align. I implemented dragging the Align widget in there. Um, so, yeah, that's one thing you have to, to watch out because you want to provide a good user experience for each of the components. Like, it doesn't make sense to just throw it out there and, well, supporting multiple widgets. Um, doesn't work that way. Um, have fun. It's more like mm -hmm. have less components to support. Maybe have a, a smaller use case, a smaller uh, uh, feature list. But then have those features which are in there work very well. Because then you can say, okay, maybe don't use this for a full-blown production app. But if you want to have this little screen, sure, go ahead, try it out, build it. Should work pretty well. Yeah, for me, I'm I'm trying to support all the material design and not touching slivers or Cupertino because yeah. those are two other huge crazy things. And also, you know, I was going to say, you know, one thing you may not think about when building something like this is the code that you write normally is not necessarily code that you would expect to have written from these these generators because you know to get something to look correct, it may look way different than you would have you know, written out in a declarative way, you just may take a couple lines to write something that, you know, it's just, it's way different. Like, so like when you start adding stacks and, mm -hmm. um, you know, just all these various things when you want free floating widgets and stuff like that, it's just, you got to think about how it all fits together. And, um, yeah, it's just, when you have a UI builder, it's necessarily going to be different for sure. Yeah. And it's like also super hard to like, um, Compared to Android, for example, or the web where you have this um, static representation of UI, um, the Android XML stuff, uh, the web HTML and CSS things, in, in far you, you have code and code itself is, it's breathing, it's alive. Like you can do all sorts of weird, cool, practical and smart things. And first off, uh, building something like this and then reading it back in and just processing it, uh, that's like a big challenge, which... Um, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I've tried. Uh, I played around with a lot of ideas, uh, even as far as building an own programming language, which targets the <laughs> Dart format, uh, which, which I have done. It works. Uh, it's been a fun project. Maybe <laughs> it's going to see the light of the day at some point. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but um, in the end, this is this is something super hard, and you have to to have compromises. Like, you can say, okay, the code which is generated has this uh, um, style, 
which is good code, like you can use it. Maybe it's a bit different from what you would have been writing, but it's also not code which you don't want to touch ever yourself. Right. Like just generate it, yes. forget about it. That also um, doesn't sound like a good way to, to approach this because what if you want to use it for a widget, but then you want to add stuff on top, which isn't supported right now. You would have to rewrite it if the code is bad. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, people have asked me like, why, why can't you just like support my existing widgets? And it's like, I can compile your widgets, but the problem is, you know, like you can have build methods that, um, or return methods that actually return widgets. And then you, those can depend on other files. Those, those can depend on logic that doesn't exist in the runtime. You, a widget can be presented in a way that is different from the runtime. Like, so you have mm -hmm. like a, a UI building mode and then an editor building mode. And so yeah, that's been quite challenging. And then also the fact is like I made the, um, you know, a distinction when I started building mine that any widget created is immutable. So like, you know, you can use the widget at runtime, but once you use it, like you can't really modify it, which is on purpose because once you start modifying it, then you got to figure out like what they changed and how they changed it versus like, um, using a generated widget approach, just like you wouldn't touch generated code and dart. I'm trying to do the same thing with a generated UI code. So then you can just, you take advantage of the widget, but um, that way I can always parse it. So are you talking about the code which is generated as text or the widget which is running in an editor where you press buttons, where you navigate, where you... Yeah, both. They're both stateless. So they're all stateless. So like um, when, you, when you actually click export, it'll generate the files in a generated Dart file. And then the editor also saves the state of where all the widgets are and the locations to them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, that way, when you go back and open the editor, you can have mm -hmm. your project again instead of having to lose all your work. Mm, I see. Yeah, that's one thing um, which I currently don't support, like going the other way around, exporting it and importing mm -hmm. back in. Um, it's been a thing I've been taking a look at and that's that's the thing, like what's the, the safe format? The most natural thing would be and is to save it as code. But then you have this problem that re-importing it is not that easy if you modify it in some unexpected behavior, uh, unexpected way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't want to save it as some sort of JSON and XML because then it loses the uh, the power of what widget actually is, like it's code. Right. So for me, I, I save it in two different ways. I, you, I'm using the freeze package to create my immutable data structures with all the code generated um, stuff and I have a top level dot JSON or I can also use binary but I'm using mm -hmm. JSON right now to store the project settings the widget configurations like the abstract configurations mm -hmm. and then from there that's used to generate the dark code so you have real dark code in the locations that where you're using it but then you also have the ability mm -hmm. to customize it and re import the editor but so if you then want to customize the actual dark code which is generated you can go back into the editor, right? Like, I mean, I mean, it's good and it, it serves its purpose, but like I'm thinking about a way or a world where this would be possible, where you could do all mm -hmm. the modifications you wanted, but like you need some sort of, like if you're just trying to patch edge cases, like, okay, maybe don't define yeah. static functions. It's not going to work because there's an endless amount of edge cases. Um, yes. Like yes. literally <laughs> endless. Uh, the grammar for this is, uh, I don't know how it was called, but there's just endless ways yeah. to do something. Yeah. 
Um, exactly. So, so I'm not sure what the best way would be to approach something in a very universal way. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, I just said, okay, you build the widget, you export it, it's yours. Um, being able yep. to then re-import it using these, these basically what it is, it's a save file for the project, right? Yeah, well, I've also been um, working on building my own Dart parser, like a very crude parser. Mm -hmm. So like for the chances that you're only, and I only support if you're only importing material or Dart libraries. So if you're importing anything that's not Dart or like a third-party package, this doesn't work or even another file. But basically what I'm able to do is I'm able to parse down, find all the classes, find where the build method is. And then I'm working on actually creating my own like analyzer to like in a very quick, efficient way, parse a Dart file and get the outline of like the widgets. So I can say scaffold with mm -hmm. a child of this, with a child of this, with children of this. And um, that way I can easily import stuff. Cause like once you have that, you can, you know, build a crude import, but I'm also working on, there's a really cool package called reflectable, mm -hmm. which if you run it at runtime, it will give you somewhat um, similar behavior as dart mirrors, allowing you to, kind of like introspect all the things that you're using. I actually use this to get all the properties for the widgets that I support. So um, I can like import from material scaffold and get all the list of the constructor items. And then um, mm -hmm. I think I showed you a demo, but basically you could use this same approach for existing widgets too. Um, but the problem is this needs to run ahead before you actually import. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting problems. <laughs> it's, it's using code generation, right? Do you reflect? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, that's also the thing, uh, I looked at with my custom language. Um, so basically I've been following this book by, um, don't want to mispronounce his name, Bob Nystrom. He works on the, uh, Dart team with, uh, the Dart SDK. And he's been writing this book called Crafting Interpreters. And it's oh, yes. like, one of the best technical books I've ever read. Like it's so well, well uh, written. Like I remember I was sitting at the airport. Um, uh, I don't know where <laughs> I was flying and just l reading the book and hacking my, my language. But yeah, basically, so um, regarding language, I thought, okay, if you can target the dark kernel file, you can um, build a language which uh, works the same way Kotlin does to Java. Like they both target the same underlying system so they can have mm. a very deep compatibility. And using this uh, custom language, um, you could have restrictions in, in, in the code. And because you write the compiler yourself, you can inject as much meta information you want into the build step um, and then actually save the widget as code and modify it because you're controlling all of it. You're controlling the compiler, you're com uh, controlling the, right. the translation. Um, so that's one thing I've looked at it, uh, looked at for a bit, um, but I mean, it was mostly a fun project and actually building a custom language to then support mm -hmm. some other language to convert some visual way that like, if that isn't mad, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, I've also been exploring instead of doing my own language, I've actually been exploring like a node-based um, logic creator. So like instead of, you know, yeah, writing code, you're just like connecting nodes. So you can say like, when this happens, do this. Or, you know, when I tap on this button, I want to trigger this event. And 
it'd be kind of an interesting way because I feel like there's a lot of applications with Flutter that you could build with just a node base, like something that doesn't need a lot of crazy logic, something just like when a network request comes in, mm-hmm. either stream or do a future, do this on a repeating, on an interval, you know, just like you could yes. do so much with just that. Um, you could build a counter application easily with it. Um, but because yeah. then your state is just like amorphous and can be stored in locations. You could choose like, think of how easy it would be to once you have a node base editor say like when I'm storing mm-hmm. this value, save it to SQLite, save it to Firebase, save yes. it to here, like and then just I, I literally I literally when back in the day when I was actively developing Widget Maker, I had this phase where I was just thinking about exactly this. Like just imagine, okay, yeah, you have an application where you want to get the user data. If you have something in your uh, cached uh, storage, you want to get it from there, show it, then if you tap something with a node-based workflow, what you could do is you could have a node, which is your network user. You could connect that to some other uh, block, which first tries to go to the cache block. And in the end, all you do is you plug that node into the actual widget. Like just imagine a visual canvas where you have your widgets laid out like you do with the storyboard. Mm -hmm. And if you enable the code overlay, you see all the code connections on top of yes. the widgets. So you could actually yes. connect <laughs> the text which is on the page with a node which supplies some sort of text. And the cool thing is yeah. you could run this application in the editor and see all the data yep. flowing from one point to another and just debug it because, okay, you have this bug. What What is one thing which helps you with debugging? Just gathering as much information about the current state of the system. So what you do is you set breakpoints, you do print statements, you go through your application yep. and think, okay, I should be in this case. So the user should be logged in. Is he logged in? And in this case, you could actually see, okay, I see all of the data which is currently being held in state. I see how the data is connected. And mm-hmm. like that, that could be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And the, the cool thing is you could do it in an imperative way with Flutter 2 where you could have individual screens that are covered by nodes. You could have the yes. entire application that could be running on nodes because what's so powerful about that is then you could share those template. So you could have that logic that you could share mm. around because it'd just be a file at that point. Yes. Um, yeah. And I just, I think about, you know, there's other languages that have this and, you know, there's so many like, I just, I call them like clickable applications that you could just, you know, you click here, it goes to this screen. You mm-hmm. click here, it goes to this screen. And you just, you go to this screen, it gets a list from this URL. And it's, I don't know, you can build some really cool static applications this way. Yes. And I mean, even more complex ones, like even those complex oh, applications have a big uh, part of them are static. Like, okay, they may have some sort of fancy algorithm in there. They may have some machine learning in there, but those are mostly modules. Like you can... Right wrap that module in some sort of visual node and just just using the system and if you're this far and you have all those presets assets made like what stops you from building an application a couple of days like okay you want to log in oh, totally. just use the login module you want to have a user profile use a user profile you may want to customize it sure go ahead yeah mm-hmm. and Yes, like the possibilities yeah. are there, uh, just has to be developed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you never know whether it's an actually good idea. Like this, this could even yeah. be, <laughs> like it could be bad. We don't know. We haven't done it yet. Um, but right. I think there's a lot of movement going into the uh, direction of uh, the no code and low code 
environment where the uh, next layer of abstraction to like the very beginning was like people drilling holes in cards, which magically told the computer what to do. Yes, At some point, yeah. somebody thought, okay, let's not do holes. Let's just try to write texts, like moving yeah. registers and additions. And at some point, okay, why are we doing this? We could write some language we can actually read and write, uh, which is easy for a human. Mm -hmm. For a computer, a program language is super weird. What, what, what should a computer do with a class statement? And Yes. But because the compiler is there, which converts that into the lower language, which then goes even lower, and using this next layer of abstraction, like going from visual to language to instructions and to machine code, you have so much more abstraction. could be way more right. efficient if it's done correctly. I think at some point, we're not going to program programs using a language forever. Nope. Like... At some point, it will change. Like, even if it's AI, which is yes. just going to take over and build something on its <laughs> own, but something's going to change at some point. Yeah, I mean, and also what's crazy too about the node base editor is you can actually support plugins because a plugin can just define what its inputs and outputs are in mm -hmm. a simple file. So that's pretty cool already. But also, think about once you have a node base system, you could actually then use machine learning to generate the most optimal solution of data flow. You know, like you could literally have all the inputs and yeah, it's crazy. Like you could find logic bugs and I don't know. There's just, <laughs> there's so many possibilities when you're in a node base editor because all of a sudden now you have like basically these Legos that you can connect everything mm -hmm. to each other. Of course you can run into some crazy problems like an N plus one problem, but um, yeah, there's some pretty interesting things you could do. I think the most important thing with a node-based editor is, um, which a lot of uh, those node-based solutions which are out there uh, like, is the integration with actual code. Like how easy it mm -hmm. is to drop down a layer because a lot of times you have to write boilerplate code, which is really not fun to write. You have to go through some sort of serialization, deserialization. You have to go through maybe a type versus untyped thing. And if you have this barrier where it is more work to actually write the code in, in code than mm -hmm. um, to just write all of it in code. Like just imagine most of the notes work, but you have to write two notes, which you have to write in code. And if you have to maintain those two notes as much as you would have maintained your whole code base, right. uh, then you lose the power. It's not worth it. But if you have some way like, one click, connect it, and it's all whatever, it's typed, it's it's working, and you, you don't have the friction between going between those two worlds, and you can just separate those. Um, I think that would be an important thing. Right, and for me, what I'm thinking of when if, if I'm building this solution is maybe actually using the node-based editor to write all the code generation for you. So like, <laughs> you could, so there's two multiple approaches obviously you can take, but basically, you know, as you connect stuff, it's actually generating the dark code. And then that way you have, you know, the, all the AOT performance kind of stuff. And then the mm -hmm. cool part is what I'm thinking about is you could actually support custom scripts written in Dart, but you could even do it one step further where, you know, obviously that would work out of the hood. Um, they're out of the gate. You could just connect it. But what if you supported like these, like, I don't know if you've ever used Swift playgrounds, but like magic variables. So then you could say like, you know, you have like the name of the class and like as you're editing in the node editor, you could actually have this like Dart environment, which you can have these special variables that mm. are passed in 
that then when you generate the code, it generates the correct names and does everything for you. I feel like all of this, uh, for it to really work, it would have to be deeply integrated into your environment. Like, uh, yes. like one, one thing that's super annoying, if you have these variables and you're trying to debug and in the end it turns out you misspell the, the, uh, yeah. the, and the regex didn't catch it or something like that. So, uh, if you have something like this and you pair it with a very nice integration into, into your ID, it just feels flawlessly connected. Then that's, that's mm -hmm. where the place where it really shines. I mean, just think back where modern, modern IDEs, like what do they do for you? I couldn't imagine myself programming nowadays <laughs> without an ID which has autocomplete syntax checks, go to definition, like that's a big thing. And if you lose this for these node-based things because it just cannot comprehend and connect those, then that's a big step back. But if you have those, like I think that that has the big potential. Right. I mean, even, you know, like when we have complete ML right now, which can use machine learning to do autocomplete mm -hmm. suggestions of VS Code. But think about taking that one step further where you can have a node and it has suggested nodes, <laughs> which is kind of nuts. So like <laughs> you could say, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, do you want to do persistence? Do you want to, you know, sync it to Firebase? Do you want to do whatever? And, you know, at first glance, you think, well, maybe that's going to generate a whole bunch of code. But because of the abstraction, you're actually able to optimize it. So you can have like, mm -hmm. just like how Dart has two different modes, you have the debugging and mm. the profile and release phase. You could actually have separate modes for, yes. you know, all these different parts. Yes. And as we talked before, in the debug, uh, debug mode, you could have all sorts of different debugging information. There are the current states, the transitions, data flowing. You like, there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. So speaking of um, that, have you worked with um, the Dart Analyzer at all? I've been taking a look at it for a bit. Um, it's like, it's super interesting to have a package which is implemented in Dart to analyze Dart code and hmm. get information about itself. Um, have you? Yeah, I've, I've worked a little bit. I've been starting to build my own like kind of Dart parser, but... Yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. Um, the analyzer is so powerful, but the applications I'm working on have to run on the web, which the analyzer doesn't exist on the web, which is kind of unfortunate. But um, mm -hmm. so uh, have you, I, I think, weren't you working on like a plugin for Dart or the Dart yeah. analyzer? Um, so basically I got pretty um, fed up by the fact that I had to localize the strings manually and just go in there, extract it, go into our files. So I thought, okay, when I, I did an IntelliJ plugin before for fun. Let's try and see what I can build in an evening. Um, so I built this little plugin which uh, helps you localize keys, basically with a quick action which you IntelliJ X with the alt enter key. Um, it copies the value into a JSON file and replaces the code mm. with the correct call. Um, and then I thought, okay, this was pretty tedious to write, like. Java with IntelliJ <laughs> APIs and all that stuff. Like, it, like most of the stuff was undocumented. I had to search through so many things. I thought um, it would be way better and cooler to actually write this code in Dart, like write a Dart plugin for that. Wow. So uh, I stumbled across this project or this thing called um, Analyzer Plugins, which basically is exactly this. Um, it allows you to write a plugin which is written in Dart uh, which runs inside the analyzer, 
which um, in modern IDEs, for example, IntelliJ and VS Code, um, allows you to inject or add, for example, suggestions, go to definitions, uh, refactorings and all that stuff. And with this, like during this podcast, I just thought when we were talking about the program language with this, with my custom program language, I could even implement a go to definition cross boundary. Like in Dart, wow. I could run my <laughs> my compiler and analyzer on my custom program language and allow the user to go from the Dart code inside that custom language because all the code which mm. is there is written in Dart. You don't have to do some weird plugins and mm. super easy. So so that's one thing um, I'm exploring right now. Like I've been trying to set it up. Uh, it's... I should be able to to have a few experiments running in a couple of days, um, but that's super interesting. H- have you heard about this? Yeah, yeah, I um, I, yeah, I've just been seeing the kind of stuff that you've been doing. I mean, the the analyzer plugin is just like incredibly powerful, and like you said earlier, like I couldn't imagine developing without an IDE now. Like, I mean, there's so much work that the analyzer does for you as a developer, and I feel like um the ways that we can solve our own pain points to create solutions to things that we're facing every day only makes us better developers. Um, yeah. And I, I love the fact that you did it with the internationalization plugin. Cause that's for me a huge um, thing already. Cause like how many strings do you probably have in an application? You probably have like hundreds, maybe, maybe even a thousand depending on a big application. And you have to go into each one of them, store them in a JSON file. And yeah, it's a, it's a tedious process. That's for sure. Yeah, actually, after I published the plugin, um, uh, Dominic pointed out that uh, something very similar exists for VS Code, and sure enough, it also exists for IntelliJ, uh, which yes. is the Intel plugin by Localize, um, mm-hmm. which does pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, only drawback is that it only works with their format and exactly. the way they, they do the code. And um, I had a like it was working okay um my case it's more flexible like you can specify what the code is which is going to be replaced and stuff like this like for example if you're doing your own localization system where you're using a custom package or maybe sometimes you're just using a plain old json file which you load in with with um as a file and in this case you can use this plugin to write to localize with your own system um mm. But yeah, like things like these, like it went from, okay, I really don't want to do this task. This is so annoying <laughs> to, oh, I'll just do a few strings here and there. I mean, it isn't any extra work. Right. And I mean, it is a small thing. Like you could sit down and do this, but just a feeling of being productive and actually not sitting down to do the tedious work, but to actually express yourself and work on actual problems which you're solving instead of just coding right exactly well one thing you could do though is because it's an analyzer plugin wouldn't you be able to write a, a plugin that could just automatically extract all strings to a json map for you on existing code so, so that plugin um i was doing it in pure intellij and that's where uh this idea um to make it in dark came from so i haven't actually looked at all the apis yet um mm. but it could definitely be possible like um it's it could be hard to figure out which strings to actually localize like sometimes you have strings which are which should be localized and some shouldn't for example mm-hmm. 
strings in variables where you just save something you don't want to localize. But then again, yeah. you may have variables which you do want to localize, which just holds the current user output or something like this. Yeah. Um, so I think just manually going in there and selecting those one by one is a fair compromise because it's little work. When you see something, you just tap two keys and it's done. And on the other hand, you don't have to rely on the system to magically figure out which strings to extract and which, which to leave in place. Well, you can always, you know, use start decorators to decorate any variables you don't want to have extracted. Of course, it's, it's a valid yeah. approach. Um, yeah, I was just fascinated by the uh, ability to write these plugin extensions for the analyzer because that's the thing you're using daily. Like your um, IDE, which does so much stuff, and you're if you're able to to customize it even further for packages or systems you are using that that in my opinion is a pretty big uh, productivity boost yep and not only that but you just learning about how the analyzer works under the hood only makes you use dart better too yes. because um, you start to really understand how powerful everything is and how you can optimize things for sure so next I want to talk about um, storyboarding and I know that your widget maker already does some of this. Like what kind of approaches did you take when, you know, having to lay out multiple canvases, you know, and be able to pan around and, um, you know, what, what kind of inspired you to do that? Mm, so you're talking about the widget makers, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, well, basically um, most of the graphics application do this. And the idea was from the beginning to be, um, somewhat similar to what Sketch, Figma, and all those applications are. Um, and implementing it was pretty interesting. I think I answered to a stack overflow question. So I was using a stack with a transform. And basically when you scroll, you're just transforming and making them more and bigger. And using the stack, I was able to position all the widgets. But there was one problem is when you transform the stack and make it smaller, the area mm -hmm. where it can um, get user inputs um, is also smaller. So what happened is you, when you tried, I think when you tried to, to drag outside of the middle where it was actually at, it didn't work. So what I ended up doing is actually copying the whole stack code and just removing one line in the test render or <laughs> the hit, hit test where it was checking if yeah. the position is actually in the bounds. And I was, okay, don't check where it's in the bounds. You are hit. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a pretty interesting thing. Um, how did you do this in the in your storyboard? Uh, hearing you say that makes me realize all the incredible amount of effort that went into my solution that <laughs> I probably should have thought about doing that. Um, so for what I did for my storyboard is... I, I faced the same problem as you. Like my first approach was I wanted to be able to support zooming in and out of the canvas and um, all this. And this was my, my third iteration on trying to figure this out. Um, I came up with a solution. I don't know if it's the correct solution, but I'm using a stack just like you, using mm -hmm. the offset to uh, pan around. But the only difference is I'm transforming each child that's on the stack and aligning it. So mm -hmm. then... Um, I have the widgets that, you know, can expand and contract. And then I transform those to where it actually works pretty well and pretty performant. But yeah, cause I was facing that issue where if you, once the, the stack started shrinking, then yeah, you can tap on anything else. Mm -hmm. I feel like this approach 
is just different. But yeah, um, it was definitely a lot more work to try to figure out um, everything. And in fact, before I did this last um, one that I just published, I was actually transforming each child on the canvas. So in theory, I was wanting to be able to support dragging each screen around to wherever you want, which I may still in the future. But this approach is so much simpler. I can, you know, put a grid view on the canvas. I can put a stack or a, a, a wrap or even columns and rows. And then I transform those down to scale and then have them, you know, in a column that all go together. So kind of mm -hmm. different, but uh, yeah, it was definitely interesting to try to solve that because it's not exactly obvious. There's no like, you know, flutter widgets out there that are doing this. It's, you know, a, a canvas approach is definitely something new kind of concept. But like once you do it, it's like, wow, that was really simple. You know, like you, yeah. you expect it to be so much more complicated and it works so well with performance because it's clipping out the bounds and um, only mm -hmm. rendering what's on the screen. Yeah, I think like um, there are very few cases where you'd actually want to do a custom render object. But I think if you would right. be having this inside the framework, which would have to support a huge variety of use cases, making this a render object would probably make sense because then you could also implement stuff like lazy loading, like a canvas.builder where you may have millions of widgets, but only actually build those which are in the viewport, lazily destroy, maintain state, destroy state and do all those things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you don't need those, why bother and go this road? Because that, that's something which gets complicated. Then you have to think about the life cycle of children, how they are laid out, how to efficiently do mm -hmm. all that stuff. And I mean, it's always best to stay on the topmost layer, the widgets layer, and try to use what's on there and only drop down right. if you really have to. Um, but I mean, yeah. uh, if it works, it's a good solution, right? <laughs> yep. I've tested it with about maybe 150, 200 screens on the canvas at the same time, and it seems to work pretty well. Um, yeah. You taking this new approach helped a lot because before it was having to render everything off screen too and overflowing, mm. which that was causing a huge performance reason. So our mm -hmm. performance cost. So now because I'm clipping the stack on the viewport and doing that and then clipping each child too, it really reduced the amount of overhead I was facing. Mm, I see you. Yeah. But it, it's pretty cool though. I built it because I wanted to um, be able to create my flutter application with all my screens up at the same time and just like, you know, change the theme file and watch everything update or, you know, add a new screen or widget mm -hmm. customized. Cause the thing is that it supports hot reload and it keeps the state of all the screens. You can, mm -hmm. I even recently added a restart button. So you could even restart the entire applications pretty easily, which is crazy, but I just found out how simple it is to do that. Um, I was looking at device preview on how it works. Mm -hmm. If you just give your widget a new key and call set state, it yep. will, restart the state of the widget. I don't know. I thought it was going to be so much more complicated, but all you have to do is just give a new key to your material app and then it does basically restarts. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I could have used that for other applications too. Like maybe <laughs> like if the user logs out and you want to guarantee that it's a fresh app, you could even do the same kind of concept where you could just give a new key every time a user logs out. Yes. Kind of interesting. So um, one thing I wonder and I ask myself, um, I don't know where you're dealing with this right now, but what, what would be your uh, opinions on this, for example, if you have an application which relies on scopes? For example, you have a few screens which only work if the user's logged in because there's no nothing to show on the user profile if there's no user. Mm -hmm. 
how can you ensure that all the screens are in a somewhat valid configuration? For example, if you have two screens which are mutually exclusive, for example, a user logged in screen, which expects a user to be logged in and a user logged out screen, which expects the user to be logged out. How can you visualize both of the screens at the same time? Um, maybe have, in the worst case, wrong data, which is marked as that, um, but still not crash. Yeah, for me, what I did is I introduced this concept of uh, custom screens, which allow you to add any number set of screens whatever kind of constructors you want. So outside of your routes and everything else, you can pass in the data explicitly. So you can say mm -hmm. like, you know, you can say this is this configuration for this widget. This is this configuration. You could even have the same widget with different sizes even. Um, and the purpose of this is exactly like what you said. Um, sometimes you want to pass in dummy data. Like for example, um, if you wanted to preview a detail screen, mm -hmm. you like with the storyboard, you don't have to wait for the um, JSON request to load because yes, in the storyboard, you can still tap and go to the details. You can also view the details with dummy data and just modify all the, you know, hot reload, all the changes without having to run your application, which I think is pretty cool because there's many times that you're doing a detail screen and maybe you're trying to find like that perfect JSON item that has all the data or like it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many edge cases. And then, so with this approach, you can actually edit not only the list view, the details and the sub details all at the same time. So you're taking the approach of having these screens, uh, very modular without any extra dependencies, like no stream yep. builders, no block builders, none of those, but pass in the data instead. Yep. So, so the thing is, how could you go ahead and make this with the least boilerplate code possible? So what I could think about is, for example, have the screen take all the data and have a screen which wraps the screen, which then actually provides the data with a stream builder. But then again, you have two widgets, which essentially could be one widget. How would you be dealing with this? You could mock it for sure. You could even do like, a, you could wrap the widget with a a presenter widget or something. And then all it does is just mock the, the logged in state of the, mm. the scope of what it's looking for. Since it'll be looking up for the block with the logged in state, you could literally provide that. So mm, I see. Yeah, that's interesting. So you could have a package which just contains a bunch of mocks, which wrap all of these. Yep. Mm, that's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. You wouldn't yep. have to modify your actual app and you would still Correct. have the benefits of being able to, and you, I mean, you could show, uh, mock data in your preview like mm -hmm. you want, want to see what user it is you, you don't care who's logged in but you want to see the data and for me too like i'm on at least where it is now like 0.1.1 i'm trying to support um you know pure widgets at first like you know those those work best and second mm -hmm. thing is just regular widgets that then you can you know log in or do whatever but the reason why is you know there's many times that like you may write in a widget that has way too much logic and mm -hmm. I'm trying to encourage, you know, basically creating like a view model. So like you have just a widget that's just presenting the data mm -hmm. because if you do that, then it's super easy to customize it and add a bunch of stuff and test everything because then you can use the view model to then present that data based on the data that comes in. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's really depending on how you write Flutter code too, because there's like, a ton of different ways how you can create applications and how you create screens. But yeah, I'm trying to create the abstraction that's above the block layer. So literally just showing the widgets themselves. Going back to, to the mocking stuff, like um, if you then go the, the additional step to 
work on this mocking, I can really see the block library work um, pretty mm -hmm. well with this because it's very um, like view modelly. You have the states which are very encapsulated, yep. so you could actually have um, some sort of I don't know annotation or even just a helper method, which where you mm -hmm. all you do is you provide the state object which you want this screen to to access, and internally you could hook it up with your um, block providers and do all of that stuff and just load in this one state because if exactly. you are following the block package way and you have all your blocks in there, you could have a fully functional app mocked with like literally a few lines of code and you could have mm -hmm. all your apps visible. So so that's also one thing if you're talking about just pure widgets, a lot of times in my code base I'm thinking, okay, have I done this widget before? Is it somewhere in my code base uh, where I don't know or I have do I have to redo it? Uh, so what I usually do is just mm -hmm. open the app, navigate around and try to see where I have a similar widget, but using this, you could just have a palette of widgets, like um, yep. widgets which you've been using everywhere and just see yourself, okay, where is this widget? And you could even do something like navigate to the widget in your ID, like tap the widget and right. show in code. And then, okay, I know this widget exists. I'm just using it this way. That would be super powerful. What I typically do with blocks, though, is for me, I like to have most of my logic in the blocks. Like I, I almost use them as like a repository for triggering actions, and my widgets are literally, um, well, I guess because I'm doing a lot of web applications now, all of them have to be able to support like deep linking. So mm -hmm. if they're not logged in, like it's the widget can log itself in. Like you can actually log in from that screen. I don't necessarily have to go to the login screen to do it. So like I just show a pop up or a dialog. So that yeah, that's the only different approach that I guess in my applications I haven't faced that too much because my blocks are kind of separate. Like my widgets can live outside of my blocks. Mm, I see. Yeah, for me, most of my um, scoping is very very um, implicit in the widget tree. Like I have widgets where I expect this widget can only ever be seen if the user is logged in. So I'm actually gotcha. just casting to a logged in user state just being sure mm -hmm. okay you you have no way of navigating into here without being locked in because if you would be locked out the widget tree above would be rebuilding and destroying this widget immediately so you would never have the chance mm -hmm. to be in here without being locked in so for me um i have a very scoped architecture i actually even use uh mostly one nested navigator where i include for example a user authenticated scope like um this way even though I'm in the subtree, I can push to that route without re like pushing on top of that scope. Like I'm always pushing under it. So anything which is inside this app has access to that block. But there's also mm. widgets which are outside of that scope which don't have access to that. So for me it's very implicit. Wow. So it would be very, very um helpful to have this way of mocking that because most of the widget depend on some kind of block to get data from. Gotcha. That's very powerful. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely be looking into that more. Maybe we can talk about that more next episode because, uh, yeah, that's something I'm definitely wanting to support is be able to support all different kinds of state management solutions, you know, like Redux, like be able to pass in your store mm -hmm. and to see, you know, a mock state of everything. Um, yeah, that's super powerful. So uh, what do you have uh, going on this week? So this week, what have I... Um, I, I will be doing a bit of work on a widget maker, um, mostly just doing a bit of cleanup, um, documenting stuff. So if anybody's interested in contributing, talking, 
uh, just just talking about the ideas and potential solutions, um, be sure to to hit me up, uh, open an issue, send me an email, whatever, uh, whatever you want. Um, also, probably be exploring the analyzer plugin and see where I can um, build something useful. Like we just talked uh, quite a bit about block and. We talked about this problem before that when you dispatch an action and you want to see what the actual code is which is executed, um, you control tap on the action and where does it lead you to the constructor of the action. There's not much information uh, one from there because there's a, there isn't actually any logic. So I thought it would be pretty interesting to write an analyzer plugin which actually takes you to the code where the action is processed. Um, so yeah. that's one thing I'll be taking a look to. Um, how about you? Uh, yeah, going to have a pretty busy week. I'll be talking at Flutter Europe this week, so make sure to um, look out for that. We'll have links to everything we talked about in this episode as well in the description. Um, I'm going to be working on the Flutter editor and kind of more going down the rabbit hole of, uh, for me, I've just discovered protobufs and gRPC and the amazing world of everything that is binary and HTTP2. So I'm going to be you know, going hardcore into that uh, rabbit hole. So we'll see what comes out of that. Um, and, then and also just, you know, continuing to make updates to the storyboard as well as the golden layout package that I made. So uh, thanks so much for listening today. If you have any questions, like always, you can reach out to us on Twitter, um, GitHub, or just, um, you know, find us. Uh, our emails are out there. Um, if you want to uh, support this podcast, please, uh, you know, give it a rating on iTunes. That's always really helpful. And uh, make sure you, you know, comment on our repositories on GitHub. You know, we like to see the feedback. We want to see what you guys are thinking. Um, feel free to make issues or PRs or whatever. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you um, in the next episode. Thanks.